Part First of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, The Silver of the Mine, Chapter Six, Section One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part First, The Silver of the Mine, Chapter Six, Section One. At that time Nostromo had been already long enough in the country to raise to the highest pitch Captain Mitchell's opinion of the extraordinary value of his discovery. Clearly he was one of those invaluable subordinates whom, to possess, is a legitimate cause of boasting. Captain Mitchell plumed himself upon his eye for men, but he was not selfish, and in the innocence of his pride was already developing that mania for lending you my capataz de cargadores, which was to bring Nostromo into personal contact, sooner or later, with every European in Sulaco as a sort of universal factotum, a prodigy of efficiency in his own sphere of life. The fellow is devoted to me, body and soul, Captain Mitchell was given to affirm and though nobody perhaps could have explained why it should be so, it was impossible, on a survey of their relation, to throw doubt on that statement, unless indeed one were a bitter, eccentric character like Dr. Monigham, for instance, whose short, hopeless laugh expressed somehow an immense mistrust of mankind. Not that Dr. Monigham was a prodigal either of laughter or of words, he was bitterly taciturn when at his best, at his worst, people feared the open scornfulness of his tongue. Only Mrs. Gould could keep his unbelief in men's motives within due bounds. But even to her, on an occasion not connected with Nostromo, and in a tone which for him was gentle, even to her he had once said, Really, it is most unreasonable to demand that a man should think of other people so much better than he is able to think of himself and Mrs. Gould had hastened to drop the subject. There were strange rumours of the English doctor. Years ago, in the time of Gutzman Bento, he had been mixed up, it was whispered, in a conspiracy which was betrayed and, as people expressed it, drowned in blood. His hair had turned grey. His hairless seamed face was of a brick-dust colour. The large check pattern of his flannel shirt and his old stained Panama hat were an established defiance to the conventionalities of Sulaco. Had it not been for the immaculate cleanliness of his apparel, he might have been taken for one of those shiftless Europeans that are a moral eyesore to the respectability of a foreign colony in almost every exotic part of the world. The young ladies of Sulaco adorning with clusters of pretty faces the balconies along the street of the Constitution, when they saw him pass with his limping gait and bowed head, a short linen jacket drawn on carelessly over the flannel check shirt, would remark to each other, Here is the senor doctor going to call on Donna Amelia. He has got his little coat on. The inference was true. Its deeper meaning was hidden from their simple intelligence. Moreover, they expended no store of thought on the doctor. He was old, ugly, learned, and a little loco, mad, if not a bit of a sorcerer, as the common people suspected him of being. The little white jacket was in reality a concession to Mrs. Gould's humanising influence. The doctor, with his habit of sceptical, bitter speech, had no other means of showing his profound respect for the character of the woman who was known in the country as the English Senora. He presented this tribute very seriously indeed. It was no trifle for a man of his habits. 
Mrs. Gould felt that too perfectly. She would never have thought of imposing upon him this marked show of deference. She kept her old Spanish house, one of the finest specimens in Sulaco, open for the dispensation of the small graces of existence. She dispensed them with simplicity and charm because she was guided by an alert perception of values. She was highly gifted in the art of human intercourse, which consists in delicate shades of self-forgetfulness and in the suggestion of universal comprehension. Charles Gould, the Gould family, established in Costaguana for three generations, always went to England for their education and for their wives, imagined that he had fallen in love with a girl's sound common sense like any other man. But these were not exactly the reasons why, for instance, the whole surveying camp, from the youngest of the young men to their mature chief, should have found occasion to allude to Mrs Gould's house so frequently amongst the high peaks of the Sierra. She would have protested that she had done nothing for them, with a low laugh and a surprised widening of her grey eyes, had anybody told her how convincingly she was remembered on the edge of the snow line above Sulaco. But directly, with a little capable air of setting her wits to work, she would have found an explanation. Of course, it was such a surprise for these boys to find any sort of welcome here, and I suppose they are homesick. I suppose everybody must be always just a little homesick. She was always sorry for homesick people. Born in the country, as his father before him, spare and tall, with a flaming moustache, a neat chin, clear blue eyes, auburn hair, and a thin, fresh red face, Charles Gould looked like a new arrival from over the sea. His grandfather had fought in the cause of independence under Bolivar in that famous English legion which on the battlefield of Carabobo had been saluted by the great liberator as saviours of his country. One of Charles Gould's uncles had been the elected president of that very province of Sulaco, then called a state, in the days of federation, and afterwards had been put up against the wall of a church and shot by the order of the barbarous unionist general, Gutzman Bento. It was the same Gutzman Bento who, becoming later perpetual president, famed for his ruthless and cruel tyranny, readied his apotheosis in the popular legend of a sanguinary land-haunting spectre whose body had been carried off by the devil in person from the brick mausoleum in the nave of the Church of Assumption in Santa Marta. Thus, at least, the priests explained its disappearance to the barefooted multitude that streamed in, awestruck, to gaze at the hole in the side of the ugly box of bricks before the great altar. Gutzman Bento of cruel memory had put to death great numbers of people besides Charles Gould's uncle, but with a relative martyred in the cause of aristocracy, the Sulaco oligarchs, this was the phraseology of Gutzman Bento's time, now they were called Blancos and had given up the federal idea, which meant the families of pure Spanish descent, considered Charles as one of themselves. With such a family record, no one could be more of a Costaguanero than Don Carlos Gould, but his aspect was so characteristic that in the talk of the common people he was just the Inglés, the Englishman of Sulaco. He looked more English than a casual tourist, a sort of heretic pilgrim, however, quite unknown in Sulaco. He looked more English than the last arrived batch of young railway engineers, than anybody out of the hunting field pictures in the numbers of punch reaching his wife's drawing room two months or so after date.
it astonished you to hear him talk Spanish, Castilian as the natives say, or the Indian dialect of the country people so naturally. His accent had never been English, but there was something so indelible in all these ancestral ghouls, liberators, explorers, coffee planters, merchants, revolutionists of Costaguana, that he, the only representative of the third generation in a continent possessing its own style of horsemanship, went on looking thoroughly English even on horseback. This is not said of him in a mocking spirit of the Llaneros, men of the Great Plains, who think that no one in the world knows how to sit a horse but themselves. Charles Gould, to use the suitably lofty phrase, rode like a centaur. Riding for him was not a special form of exercise. It was a natural faculty, as walking straight is to all men sound of mind and limb. But all the same, when cantering beside the rutty ox-cart track to the mine, he looked in his English clothes and with his imported saddlery, as though he had come this moment to Costaguana at his easy, swift passo trotte, straight out of some green meadow at the other side of the world. His way would lie along the old Spanish road, the Camino Real of popular speech, the only remaining vestige of a fact and name left by that royalty old Giorgio Viola hated and whose very shadow had departed from the land. For the big equestrian statue of Charles IV at the entrance of the Almada towering white against the trees, was only known to the folk from the country and to the beggars of the town that slept on the steps around the pedestal as the horse of stone. The other Carlos, turning off to the left with a rapid clatter of hoofs on the disjointed pavement, Don Carlos Gould in his English clothes, looked as incongruous but much more at home than the kingly cavalier reigning in his steed on the pedestal above the sleeping leperos with his marble arm raised towards the marble rim of a plumed hat. The weather-stained effigy of the mounted king, with its vague suggestion of a saluting gesture, seemed to present an inscrutable breast to the political changes which had robbed it of its very name. But neither did the other horseman, well known to the people, keen and alive on his well-shaped, slate-coloured beast with a white eye, wear his heart on the sleeve of his English coat, his mind preserved its steady poise as if sheltered in the passionless stability of private and public decencies at home in Europe. He accepted with a like calm the shocking manner in which the Sulaco ladies smothered their faces with pearl powder till they looked like white plaster casts with beautiful living eyes, the peculiar gossip of the town and the continuous political changes, the constant saving of the country, which to his wife seemed a puerile and bloodthirsty game of murder and rapine played with terrible earnestness by depraved children. In the early days of her Costaguana life, the little lady used to clench her hands with exasperation at not being able to take the public affairs of the country as seriously as the incidental atrocity of methods deserved. She saw in them a comedy of naive pretenses, but hardly anything genuine except her own appalled indignation. Charles, very quiet and twisting his long moustaches, would decline to discuss them at all. Once, however, he observed to her, gently, My dear, you seem to forget that I was born here. These few words made her pause as if they had been a sudden revelation. Perhaps the mere fact of being born in the country did make a difference. She had a great confidence in her husband that had always been very great. 
He had struck her imagination from the first by his unsentimentalism, by that very quietude of mind which she had erected in her thought as a sign of perfect competency in the business of living. Don José Avellanos, their neighbour across the street, a statesman, a poet, a man of culture, who had represented his country at several European courts, and had suffered untold indignities as a state prisoner in the time of the tyrant Guzman Bento, used to declare in Dona Amelia's drawing-room that Carlos had all the English qualities of character with a truly patriotic heart. Mrs Gould, raising her eyes to her husband's thin, red and tan face, could not detect the slightest quiver of a feature at what he must have heard said of his patriotism. Perhaps he had just dismounted on his return from the mine. He was English enough to disregard the hottest hours of the day. Basilio, in a livery of white linen and a red slash, had squatted for a moment behind his heels to unstrap the heavy, blunt spurs in the patio, and then the senor administrator would go up the staircase into the gallery. Rows of plants in pots, ranged on the balustrade between the pilasters of the arches, screened the corredor with their leaves and flowers from the quadrangle below, whose paved space is the true hearthstone of a South American house where the quiet hours of domestic life are marked by the shifting of light and shadow on the flagstones. Senor Avellanos was in the habit of crossing the patio at five o'clock almost every day. Don José chose to come over at tea-time because the English rite at Donna Emilia's house reminded him of the time he lived in London as Minister Plenipotentiary to the Court of St. James. He did not like tea, and usually, rocking his American chair, his neat little shiny boots crossed on the footrest, he would talk on and on with a sort of complacent virtuosity, wonderful in a man of his age, while he held the cup in his hands for a long time. His close-cropped head was perfectly white, his eyes coal black. On seeing Charles Gould step into the sala, he would nod provisionally and go on to the end of the oratorial period. Only then he would say, Carlos, my friend, you have ridden from San Tomé in the heat of the day. Always the true English activity. No? What? He drank up all the tea at once in one draught. This performance was invariably followed by a slight shudder and a low, involuntary brrr, which was not covered by the hasty exclamation, Excellent! Then, giving up the empty cup into his young friend's hand, extended with a smile, he continued to expatiate upon the patriotic nature of the San Tomé mine for the simple pleasure of talking fluently, it seemed, while his reclining body jerked backwards and forwards in a rocking chair of the sort exported from the United States. The ceiling of the largest drawing-room of the Casa Gould extended its white level far above his head. The loftiness dwarfed the mixture of heavy, straight-backed Spanish chairs of brown wood with leathern seats, and European furniture, low and cushioned all over, like squat little monsters gorged to bursting with steel springs and horsehair. There were knick-knacks on little tables, mirrors let into the wall above marble consoles, square spaces of carpet under the two groups of armchairs, each presided over by a deep sofa, smaller rugs scattered all over the floor of red tiles three windows from the ceiling down to the ground opening on a balcony and flanked by the perpendicular folds of the dark hangings. 
The stateliness of ancient days lingered between the four high, smooth walls, tinted a delicate primrose colour, and Mrs Gould, with her little head and shining coils of hair, sitting in a cloud of muslin and lace before a slender mahogany table, resembled a fairy posed lightly before dainty filters dispensed out of vessels of silver and porcelain. Mrs Gould knew the history of the San Tome mine. Worked in the early days mostly by means of lashes on the backs of slaves, its yield had been paid for in its own weight of human bones. Whole tribes of Indians had perished in the exploitation, and then the mine was abandoned, since with this primitive method it had ceased to make a profitable return, no matter how many corpses were thrown into its maw. Then it became forgotten. It was rediscovered after the War of Independence, an English company obtained the right to work it and found so rich a vein that neither the exactions of successive governments nor the periodical raids of recruiting officers upon the population of paid miners they had created could discourage their perseverance. But in the end, during the long turmoil of pronunciamentos that followed the death of the famous Gutzmann Bento, the native miners, incited to revolt by the emissaries sent out from the capital, had risen upon their English chiefs and murdered them to a man. The decree of confiscation, which appeared immediately afterwards in the Diario Oficial, published in Santa Marta, began with the words, Justly incensed at the grinding oppression of foreigners, actuated by sordid motives of gain, rather than by love for a country where they come impoverished to seek their fortunes, the mining population of San Tome, etc., and ended with the declaration, the chief of the state has resolved to exercise to the full his power of clemency, the mine which by every law, international, human and divine, reverts now to the government as national property shall remain closed till the sword drawn for the sacred defence of liberal principles has accomplished its mission of securing the happiness of our beloved country. And for many years this was the last of the San Tome mine. What advantage that government had expected from the spoliation, it is impossible to tell now. Costaguana was made with difficulty to pay a beggarly money compensation to the families of the victims, and then the matter dropped out of diplomatic dispatches. But afterwards another government bethought itself of that valuable asset. It was an ordinary Costaguana government, the fourth in six years, but it judged of its opportunities sanely. It remembered the San Tome mine with a secret conviction of its worthlessness in their own hands, but with an ingenious insight into the various uses a silver mine can be put to, apart from the sordid process of extracting the metal from under the ground. The father of Charles Gould, for a long time one of the most wealthy merchants of Costaguana, had already lost a considerable part of his fortune in forced loans to the successive governments. He was a man of calm judgment who never dreamt of pressing his claims, and when, suddenly, the perpetual concession of the San Tome mine was offered to him in full settlement, his alarm became extreme. He was versed in the ways of governments. Indeed, the intention of this affair, though no doubt deeply meditated in the closet, lay open on the surface of the document presented urgently for his signature. The third and most important clause stipulated that the concession holder should pay at once to the government five years' royalties on the estimated output of the mine. 
Mr Gould Senior defended himself from this fatal favour with many arguments and entreaties, but without success. He knew nothing of mining. He had no means to put his concession on the European market. The mine as a working concern did not exist. The buildings had been burnt down. The mining plant had been destroyed. The mining population had disappeared from the neighbourhood years and years ago. The very road had vanished under a flood of tropical vegetation as effectually as if swallowed by the sea, and the main gallery had fallen in within a hundred yards from the entrance. It was no longer an abandoned mine, it was a wild, inaccessible and rocky gorge of the Sierra, where vestiges of charred timber, some heaps of smashed bricks, and a few shapeless pieces of rusty iron could have been found under the matted mass of thorny creepers covering the ground. Mr Gould Senior did not desire the perpetual possession of that desolate locality. In fact, the mere vision of it arising before his mind in the still watches of the night had the power to exasperate him into hours of hot and agitated insomnia. It so happened, however, that the finance minister of the time was a man to whom, in years gone by, Mr Gould had, unfortunately, declined to grant some small pecuniary assistance, basing his refusal on the ground that the applicant was a notorious gambler and cheat, besides being more than half suspected of a robbery with violence on a wealthy ranchero in a remote country district where he was actually exercising the function of a judge. Now, after reaching his exalted position, that politician had proclaimed his intention to repay evil with good to Senor Gould, the poor man. He affirmed and reaffirmed this resolution in the drawing-rooms of Santa Marta in a soft and implacable voice, and with such malicious glances that Mr Gould's best friends advised him earnestly to attempt no bribery to get the matter dropped. It would have been useless. Indeed, it would not have been a very safe proceeding. Such was also the opinion of a stout, loud-faced lady of French extraction, the daughter, she said, of an officer of high rank, Officier Superior de l'Armée, who was accommodated with lodgings within the walls of a secularised convent next door to the Ministry of Finance. That florid person, when approached on behalf of Mr Gould in a proper manner and with a suitable present, shook her head despondently. She was good-natured, and her despondency was genuine. She imagined she could not take money in consideration of something she could not accomplish. The friend of Mr Gould, charged with the delicate mission, used to say afterwards that she was the only honest person closely or remotely connected with the government he had ever met. No go, she had said, with a cavalier, husky intonation which was natural to her, and using turns of expression more suitable to a child of parents unknown than to the orphan daughter of a general officer. No, it's no go. Pas moyen, mon garçon, c'est dommage, tout de même. Ah, zut, je ne vole pas mon monde, je ne suis pas ministre. Moi, vous pouvez emporter votre petit sac. For a moment, biting her carmen lip, she deplored inwardly the tyranny of the rigid principles governing the sale of her influence in high places. Then, significantly and with a touch of impatience, Allez, she added, aidez-vous bien à votre bonhomme, entendez-vous after such a warning, there was nothing for it but to sign and pay. Mr Gould had swallowed the pill, 
and it was as though it had been compounded of some subtle poison that acted directly on his brain. He became at once mind-ridden, and as he was well-read in light literature, it took to his mind the form of the old man of the sea fastened upon his shoulders. He also began to dream of vampires. Mr Gould exaggerated to himself the disadvantage of his new position because he viewed it emotionally. His position in Costaguana was no worse than before, but man is a desperately conservative creature, and the extravagant novelty of this outrage upon his purse distressed his sensibilities. Everybody around him was being robbed by the grotesque and murderous bands that played their game of governments and revolutions after the death of Gutzman Bento. His experience had taught him that, however short the plunder might fall of their legitimate expectations, no gang in possession of the presidential palace would be so incompetent as to suffer itself to be baffled by the want of a pretext. The first casual colonel of the barefooted army of scarecrows that came along was able to expose with force and precision to any mere civilian his titles to a sum of ten thousand dollars, the while his hope would be immutably fixed upon a gratuity at any rate of no less than a thousand. Mr Gould knew that very well, and armed with resignation had waited for better times but to be robbed under the forms of legality and business was intolerable to his imagination. Mr Gould, the father, had one fault in his sagacious and honourable character. He attached too much importance to form. It is a failing common to mankind whose views are tinged by prejudices. There was for him in that affair a malignancy of perverted justice which, by means of a moral shock, attacked his vigorous physique. It will end by killing me, he used to affirm many times a day. And in fact, since that time, he began to suffer from fever, from liver pains, and mostly from a worrying inability to think of anything else. The finance minister would have formed no conception of the profound subtlety of his revenge. Even Mr Gould's letters to his fourteen-year-old boy Charles, then away in England for his education, came at last to talk of practically nothing but the mine. He groaned over the injustice, the persecution, the outrage of that mine. He occupied whole pages in the exposition of the fatal consequences attaching to the possession of that mine from every point of view, with every dismal inference, with words of horror at the apparently eternal character of that curse. For the concession had been granted to him and his descendants for ever. He implored his son never to return to Costaguana, never to claim any part of his inheritance there, because it was tainted by the infamous concession, never to touch it, never to approach it, to forget that America existed and pursue a mercantile career in Europe. And each letter ended with bitter self-reproaches for having stayed too long in that cavern of thieves, intriguers and brigands. To be told repeatedly that one's future is blighted because of the possession of a silver mine is not, at the age of fourteen, a matter of prime importance as to its main statement, but in its form it is calculated to excite a certain amount of wonder and attention. In course of time the boy, at first only puzzled by the angry Jeremiads, but rather sorry for his dad, began to turn the matter over in his mind in such moments as he could spare from play and study. 
In about a year, he had evolved from the lecture of the letters a definite conviction that there was a silver mine in the Sulaco province of the Republic of Costaguana, where poor Uncle Harry had been shot by soldiers a great many years before. There was also, connected closely with that mine, a thing called the Iniquitous Gould Concession, apparently written on a paper which his father desired ardently to tear and fling into the faces of presidents, members of judicature, and ministers of state. And this desire persisted, though the names of these people, he noticed, seldom remained the same for a whole year together. This desire, since the thing was iniquitous, seemed quite natural to the boy, though why the affair was iniquitous he did not know. Afterwards, with advancing wisdom, he managed to clear the plain truth of the business from the fantastic intrusions of the old man of the sea, vampires and ghouls, which had lent to his father's correspondence the flavour of a gruesome Arabian night's tale. In the end, the growing youth attained to as close an intimacy with the San Tome mine as the old man who wrote these plaintive and enraged letters on the other side of the sea. He had been made several times already to pay heavy fines for neglecting to work the mine, he reported, besides other sums extracted from him on account of future royalties, on the ground that a man with such a valuable concession in his pocket could not refuse his financial assistance to the government of the Republic. The last of his fortune was passing away from him against worthless receipts, he wrote in a rage whilst he was being pointed out as an individual who had known how to secure enormous advantages from the necessities of his country. The young man in Europe grew more and more interested in that thing which could provoke such a tumult of words and passion. He thought of it every day, but he thought of it without bitterness. It might have been an unfortunate affair for his poor dad, and the whole story threw a queer light upon the social and political life of Costaguana, the view he took of it was sympathetic to his father, yet calm and reflective. His personal feelings had not been outraged, and it is difficult to resent with proper and durable indignation the physical or mental anguish of another organism, even if that other organism is one's own father. By the time he was twenty, Charles Gould's had, in his turn, fallen under the spell of the San Tome mine but it was another form of enchantment, more suitable to his youth, into whose magic formula there entered hope, vigour and self-confidence instead of weary indignation and despair. Left after he was twenty to his own guidance, except for the severe injunction not to return to Costaguana, he had pursued his studies in Belgium and France with the idea of qualifying for a mining engineer. But this scientific aspect of his labours remained vague and imperfect in his mind. Minds had acquired for him a dramatic interest. He studied their peculiarities from a personal point of view too, as one would study the varied characters of men. He visited them as one goes with curiosity to call upon remarkable persons. He visited minds in Germany, in Spain, in Cornwall. Abandoned workings had for him strong fascination. Their desolation appealed to him like the sight of human misery whose causes are varied and profound. They might have been worthless, but also they might have been misunderstood. His future wife was the first and perhaps the only person to detect this secret mood which governed the profoundly sensible, almost voiceless attitude of this man towards the world of material things. 
and at once her delight in him, lingering with half-open wings like those birds that cannot rise easily from a flat level, found a pinnacle from which to soar up into the skies. They had become acquainted in Italy, where the future Mrs Gould was staying with an old and pale aunt who, years before, had married a middle-aged, impoverished Italian marquis. She now mourned that man who had known how to give up his life to the independence and unity of his country, who had known how to be as enthusiastic in his generosity as the youngest of those who fell for that very cause of which old Giorgio Viola was a drifting relic, as a broken spar is suffered to float away, disregarded after a naval victory. The Marchesa led a still, whispering existence, nun-like in her black robes and a white band over the forehead, in a corner of the first floor of an ancient and ruinous palace, whose big, empty halls downstairs sheltered under their painted ceilings the harvests, the fowls, and even the cattle, together with the whole family of the tenant farmer. The two young people had met in Lucca. After that meeting, Charles Gould visited no mines, though they went together in a carriage once to see some marble quarries, where the work resembled mining insofar that it also was the tearing of the raw material of treasure from the earth. Charles Gould did not open his heart to her in any set speeches. He simply went on acting and thinking in her sight. This is the true method of sincerity. One of his frequent remarks was, I think sometimes that poor father takes a wrong view of that Saint-Tome business. And they discussed that opinion long and earnestly, as if they could influence a mind across half the globe. But in reality they discussed it because the sentiment of love can enter into any subject and live ardently in remote phrases. For this natural reason these discussions were precious to Mrs Gould in her engaged state. Charles feared that Mr Gould, senior, was wasting his strength and making himself ill by his efforts to get rid of the concession. I fancy that this is not the kind of handling it requires, he mused aloud as if to himself. And when she wondered, frankly, that a man of character should devote his energies to plotting and intrigues, Charles would remark with a gentle concern that understood her wonder, You must not forget that he was born there. She would set her quick mind to work upon that and then make the inconsequent retort, which he accepted as perfectly sagacious, because in fact it was so. Well, and you, you were born there too. He knew his answer. That's different. I've been away ten years. Dad never had such a long spell, and it was more than thirty years ago. She was the first person to whom he opened his lips after receiving the news of his father's death. It has killed him, he said. He had walked straight out of town with the news straight out before him in the noonday sun on the white road, and his feet had brought him face to face with her in the hall of the ruined palazzo, a room magnificent and naked, with here and there a long strip of damask, black with damp and age, hanging down on a bare panel of the wall. It was furnished with exactly one gilt armchair with a broken back, and an octagon columnar stand bearing a heavy marble vase ornamented with sculptured masks and garlands of flowers and cracked from top to bottom. Charles Gould was dusty with the white dust of the road lying on his boots, on his shoulders, on his cap with two peaks. 
Water dripped from under it all over his face, and he grasped a thick oaken cudgel in his bare right hand. She went very pale under the roses of her big straw hat, gloved, swinging a clear sunshade, caught just as she was going out to meet him at the bottom of the hill where three poplars stand near the wall of a vineyard. It has killed him, he repeated. He ought to have had many years yet. We are a long-lived family. She was too startled to say anything. He was contemplating, with a penetrating and motionless stare, the cracked marble urn as though he had resolved to fix its shape forever in his memory. It was only when, turning suddenly to her, he blurted out twice, I've come to you, I've come straight to you, without being able to finish his phrase, that the great pitifulness of that lonely and tormented death in Costaguana came to her with the full force of its misery. He caught hold of her hand, raised it to his lips, and at that she dropped her parasol to pat him on the cheek, murmured, poor boy, and began to dry her eyes under the downward curve of her hat-brim, very small in her simple white frock, almost like a lost child crying in the degraded grandeur of the noble hall, while he stood by her, again perfectly motionless in the contemplation of the marble urn. Afterwards they went out for a long walk, which was silent, till he exclaimed suddenly, Yes, but if he had only grappled with it in a proper way. And then they stopped. Everywhere there were long shadows lying on the hills, on the roads, on the enclosed fields of olive trees, the shadows of poplars, of wide chestnuts, of farm buildings, of stone walls and in mid-air the sound of a bell, thin and alert, was like the throbbing pulse of the sunset glow. Her lips were slightly parted, as though in surprise that he should not be looking at her with his usual expression. His usual expression was unconditionally approving and attentive. He was, in his talks with her, the most anxious and deferential of dictators, an attitude that pleased her immensely. It affirmed her power without detracting from his dignity. That slight girl with her little feet, little hands, little face, attractively overweighted by great coils of hair, with a rather large mouth whose mere parting seemed to breathe upon you the fragrance of frankness and generosity, had the fastidious soul of an experienced woman. She was, before all things and all flatteries, careful of her pride in the object of her choice. But now he was actually not looking at her at all, and his expression was tense and irrational, as is natural in a man who elects to stare at nothing past a young girl's head. Well, yes, it is iniquitous. They corrupted him thoroughly, the poor old boy. Oh, why wouldn't he let me go back to him? But now I shall know how to grapple with this. After pronouncing these words with immense assurance, he glanced down at her and at once fell a prey to distress, incertitude and fear. The only thing he wanted to know now, he said, was whether she did love him enough, whether she would have the courage to go with him so far away. He put these questions to her in a voice that trembled with anxiety, for he was a determined man. She did. She would. And immediately the future hostess of all the Europeans in Sulaco had the physical experience of the earth falling away from under her. It vanished completely, even to the very sound of the bell. 
When her feet touched the ground again, the bell was still ringing in the valley. She put her hands up to her hair, breathing quickly, and glanced up and down the stony lane. It was reassuringly empty. Meantime, Charles, stepping with one foot into a dry and dusty ditch, picked up the open parasol which had bounded away from them with a martial sound of drum taps. He handed it to her soberly, a little crestfallen. They turned back, and after she had slipped her hand on his arm, the first words he pronounced were, It's lucky that we should be able to settle in a coast town. You've heard its name. It is Salako. I am so glad poor father did get that house. He bought a big house there years ago, in order that there should always be a Casa Gould in the principal town of what used to be called the Occidental Province. I lived there once as a small boy with my dear mother for a whole year while poor father was away in the United States on business. You shall be the new mistress of the Casa Gould. And later, in the inhabited corner of the palazzo above the vineyards, the marble hills, the pines and olives of Luca, he also said, The name of Gould has always been highly respected in Sulaco. My uncle Harry was chief of the state for some time and has left a great name amongst the first families. By this I mean the pure Creole families who take no part in the miserable farce of government. Uncle Harry was no adventurer. In Costaguana we Goulds are no adventurers. He was of the country and he loved it, but he remained essentially an Englishman in his ideas. He made use of the political cry of his time, it was federation, but he was no politician. He simply stood up for social order out of pure love for rational liberty and from his hate of oppression. There was no nonsense about him. He went to work in his own way because it seemed right, just as I feel I must lay hold of that mine. In such words he talked to her because his memory was very full of the country of his childhood, his heart of his life with that girl, and his mind of the St. Tome concession. He added that he would have to leave her for a few days to find an American, a man from San Francisco, who was still somewhere in Europe. A few months before he had made his acquaintance in an old historic German town situated in a mining district. The American had his womankind with him, but seemed lonely while they were sketching all day long the old doorways and the turreted corners of the medieval houses. Charles Gould had with him the inseparable companionship of the mine. The other man was interested in mining enterprises, knew something of Costaguana, and was no stranger to the name of Gould. They had talked together with some intimacy, which was made possible by the difference of their ages. Charles wanted now to find that capitalist of shrewd mind and accessible character. His father's fortune in Costaguana, which he had supposed to be still considerable, seemed to have melted in the rascally crucible of revolutions. Apart from some £10,000 deposited in England, there appeared to be nothing left except the house in Sulaco, a vague right of forest exploitation in a remote and savage district, and the San Tome concession, which had attended his poor father to the very brink of the grave. He explained those things. It was late when they parted. She had never before given him such a fascinating vision of herself, all the eagerness of youth for a strange life, for great distances, for a future in which there was an air of adventure, of combat, 
A subtle thought of redress and conquest had filled her with an intense excitement which she returned to the giver with a more open and exquisite display of tenderness. He left her to walk down the hill, and directly he found himself alone he became sober. That irreparable change a death makes in the course of our daily thoughts can be felt in a vague and poignant discomfort of the mind. It hurt Charles Gould to feel that never more, by no efforts of will, would he be able to think of his father in the same way he used to think of him when the poor man was alive. His breathing image was no longer in his power. This consideration, closely affecting his own identity, filled his breast with a mournful and angry desire for action. In this, his instinct was unerring. Action is consolatory. It is the enemy of thought and the friend of flattering illusions. Only in the conduct of our action can we find the sense of mastery over the fates. For this action, the mind was obviously the only field. It was imperative sometimes to know how to disobey the solemn wishes of the dead. He resolved firmly to make his disobedience as thorough, by way of atonement, as it well could be. The mine had been the cause of an absurd moral disaster. Its working must be made a serious and moral success. He owed it to the dead man's memory. Such were the, properly speaking, emotions of Charles Gould. His thoughts ran upon the means of raising a large amount of capital in San Francisco or elsewhere, and incidentally there occurred to him also the general reflection that the counsel of the departed must be an unsound guide. Not one of them could be aware beforehand what enormous changes the death of any given individual may produce in the very aspect of the world. End of part first, The Silver of the Mine, Chapter 6, Section 1.